I searched lessons what I was going to be doing with Albert and instead doing a different lesson. I want to save that one because literally the lesson was going to be on prayer and Albert wrote the book or books on prayer. So we'll save that for later. But in the lesson today on grace, and thank you, Mark, for all those wonderful songs having to do with the theme. As we're going to be talking about grace, several scriptures are going to be read. And I was told by a dear friend of mine that when I speak, I have a nasally drone. Again, I wasn't sure how to take that. But in order to break up the monotony of listening to me talk, to have scriptures read, I'd ask Jason Cook, if he would, to read scriptures throughout, throughout the lesson. But his rugged good looks would be distractive up here. So I asked him to sit down front so you wouldn't have to be had that distraction of that eye candy standing next to me throughout the lesson. But the main theme from the lesson is going to be taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Why don't you do that again? <laughs> the mic is on. The uh, speaker's not working again. There you go. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now the italics, the underlining bold part is not in obviously the original text, but I'd ask Lori, who does a great job every week doing our slides, thank you Lori, uh, but I ask her to kind of highlight that. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. Now I don't know about your experiences growing up, but grace, number one, was not a topic I heard very much about, but I didn't know this, if you wanted to go to heaven, you needed to work for it. I mean, you need to be at church services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as some have become accustomed of doing. If there was a gospel series, a gospel lesson, you needed to be there every single night. If the doors are unlocked, you were there. If there's a church-wide community service project, I had to be there. Bring your gloves. You're going to be working. If you did all that and remember to tithe at a minimum 10%, then you might, might be a candidate for salvation. But even then, there is that lingering doubt. Have I done enough? See, grace Grace is an entirely different category from that. It's an entirely different way of thinking. It focuses not on what we do, but on what he did. Grace acknowledges there's nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven. No amount of works or attendance is going to give us enough points to earn that reward. The only way we can receive the gift of eternity with the Lord. 
is by accepting and relying on what Christ did, his works on the cross. And then working, yes, doing work, but out of this immense sense of gratitude and appreciation for, for what God has done for us, acknowledgement of our unworthiness, and realizing we're getting this gift in spite of who we are, not because of anything I can do, Guys, I promise you, if any of us try to earn our way to heaven, we've already blown that a thousand times over years ago. As we talk about grace this morning, I really hope you're going to let this sink in and register with you. Because grace can change lives. In a congregation in another state, completely, was a wonderful, wonderful, sweet woman a preacher friend of mine told me about this meeting years and years and years ago. There was this woman in church who had such a wonderful attitude, such a sweet disposition. When you saw her, it just, she just had this effervescence about her. He was new to the congregation and she impressed him so much, he scheduled a meeting with her to try to figure out and ask the questions, what's the key to your happiness? And she shared this story with him. She said, you know, for the first 35 years of my life, I wasn't like that. In fact, I was a real grouch. And one day, something happened that changed all that. She said, you know, I lived at the edge of town by the railroad tracks, kind of a country setting. And one day, there was a knock on the screen door of my back porch. I opened it up, and there was this hobo, this tramp that was there, obviously probably just wandered over from the railroad tracks. And he said, lady, I hate to bother you, but I am really, really hungry. And I'm not asking for any freebies or anything. I'll be happy to work. I'll chop wood. I'll mow the grass. I'll, I'll do anything you need. But do you think I could have a sandwich? She was irritated at the interruption. She latched the screen door and said, I can't believe you bothered me. I've got work to do. Get back out on the tracks. Go wherever it is you're going to go. But I got nothing for you. Let's move along, or I'm going to I'm going to call the police, or I'm going to get my husband out here, and he's going to run you off. <laughs> After a minute pause, he looked at her straight in the eye and said, "Lady, your husband isn't home." Nervously, she reached back to the door handle so she could shut it really quick because her husband wasn't home. She's, he is too, he's, he's working in back. Why would you say such a thing like that? He said, because lady, no one would stay one second longer in a house with you unless they absolutely had to, unless they were deathly sick. And he turned and walked off. <laughs> and she slammed the door and locked it and went back to start doing her chores. But then she started thinking about, you know, my husband really isn't home very much. She recounted the conversations from last night, how she was nagging him about not having enough grocery money or the chores that needed to be done. And this morning was nagging him about bills to be paid and these errands he needed to do. And, you know, he didn't come home as much as he used to. 
She decided life was just too short to be living like that. She decided right then and there to change. She let God's grace come in and change her life. Grace has always been a complicated subject for us. Rows of shelves at seminaries and Christian universities are filled with books written on the subject. If I were to ask the average congregation member to define grace, at least years ago, people would give the same two-word definition about what is grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I remember that definition. Favor that you don't earn. Well, that's true, but it's a little textbooky. Instead, I want to share a different definition that I read in a book years and years ago that is simple and I think probably even a child can understand. Grace is something you need that you don't deserve. This definition came from an old Scottish preacher by the name of Lyndon. I was required to read his book in college in one of my Bible classes. Lyndon lived, what, 150 years ago when preachers wore frock tail coats and stovepipe hats. And one Sunday, a lady invited him to come to tea the next morning, which he promptly did. It had snowed the night before, and Lyndon shares this story in his book. that he left that morning and started going to the woman's house. And then as he was walking, there was a boy up ahead that saw him coming. And I don't know, there's some kind of catalytic reaction, some chemical thing that happens when you mix mix these following ingredients. A little boy, wet snow, and a stovepipe hat. Because that boy saw him coming. And he dashed a few houses ahead in between the two, so there's the gap, and started making preparations. And sure enough, Lyndon came into that little gap in between the houses, and the boy stepped out and let it fly. The boy's aim wasn't too good, because yes, he missed the side, he missed the hat, but he hit the preacher right on the side of the face. And he was so excited to see where the snowball was going to land, he forgot to duck back around the house, because before he did, the preacher turned and saw him recognized him and Lyndon said oh he was furious and he turned and started walking to that little boy's house he was going to tell his mother and see to it that he got what he deserved but as he walked he started remembering the words to the sermon he had given the day before when he talked to the congregation about grace and where he had given this definition Grace is something you need that you don't deserve. So he switched directions and started walking towards the general store. Because he remembered that little boy loved to fish. And he'd seen him fishing with his homemade fishing pole, which was really just a carved up tree limb. And he went in and bought a brand new cane fishing pole. Well, he took it to the boy's house, knocked on the door, asked the mother if he could see the child, and she called and called, but he didn't come. 
surprisingly enough, he was hiding around back. He wasn't about to come out. He said, that's okay, don't worry about it. If you would, just leave this for him. Tell him I dropped it off. Tell him I knew he needed one. That afternoon came a knock on this preacher's study door. And there was a little boy holding the fishing pole. Saying, mister, I can't accept this, not, not after what I did to you. He invited him in and said, please, please sit down. Very cordial, his little feet were just dangling. He said, son, do you remember the, the sermon I had given yesterday when, when I talked to the congregation about grace? How grace is something you need that you don't deserve? Well, you know, you deserve a spanking for what you did to me today. You could have put my eye out. What you needed was a new fishing pole. Now, do you think you understand? Do you think you know what grace is? Of course, he was completely bewildered, and he stuttered, stuttered around a little bit. So, I, what is grace? I, it's a fishing pole? Well, the boy didn't know it, but he was exactly right. Grace is those fishing poles in life that we receive, but we don't really deserve. It's those gifts we receive, that forgiveness we receive, that we don't deserve. That's the way Paul felt about his salvation in Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus. Grace is at the center of Christ's teachings. Let's see how it holds up this definition under the microscope of Christ's words. We can see it as a theme in many, most actually, of Jesus' parables. Two of his probably the most familiar parables have grace as their theme. The first is the prodigal son. Probably the most familiar parable of all. And I like this parable. Partly because it reminds me of me. But before we do, I believe most people are similar. And that we all have peaks and valleys throughout our lives. Times that we're closer to God. And times that we are a little bit more distant. Times that we're thriving spiritually. In times where we really struggle, when we're tested. In my experience, there's two different kinds of these low times that we go through. The first of those low times when we're tested and we have no control over it. We didn't ask for this flood to come and mess up most of the possessions in our home. We didn't ask for this diagnosis of cancer. We didn't ask for the company we'd been working for for 20 years to go bankrupt and leave me without a job. We didn't ask for that loved one to die unexpectedly. These landmines that we step on can send us into a tailspin. The second parable we're going to look at will address that. But the other kind of low times and troubles we face or quite often of our own making. We're the ones that caused the job loss. It was us that caused that marriage to fall apart. 
It was our own sin that caused this horrible consequence. I know all of our hearts ache when it's the innocent that suffer. But God hurts for us even when we're the ones that cause it. During those times, God isn't saying, see, you're getting what you deserved. I told you so. No, God says, I hurt with you. I'm here for you. In this first parable is the kind of story in which the star causes his own demise. You know the story. This young man goes to his father and asks for his inheritance. And he takes the money and goes off into a far country where he squanders it and spends it all on riotous living. When the money goes away, so do the fake friends. And he ends up working in a pigsty. The most demoralizing, demeaning job that you could have. Finally, he comes to his senses, he says, and realizes, man, it would be so much better if I was at home. Even my servant, father's servants, they at least have a clean bed and some food to eat. He prepares this speech in Luke 15, 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He was going to go home and tell his father, I don't deserve to be called your son. But the father was watching for him. His father saw him coming and he recognized him. I don't know if it was a gate in his walk, if it was his silhouette. My guess is that father had been standing on that porch a thousand times before, watching, hoping, praying his son would come home. He ran to him and he called him son and he put a ring on his finger and put shoes on his feet and he called for the servants, kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a celebration. The son tried to give his speech but his father wouldn't let him, he interrupts, he was just too happy. The son didn't deserve that treatment. But that's what makes the story so great. Let's rewrite that story and take grace out of it. What would that look like? Well, the boy comes over the rise and there's nobody there. Yard's empty. He goes inside, knocks on the door, father's sitting in his chair. From the fire, reading the paper. The boy comes in and starts his speech, but once again the father cuts him off. But this time he's throwing down the paper. He said, what are you doing here? You've got some nerve showing your face around here, you bum. You took my hard-earned money and you went out and squandered it on liquor and prostitutes and you got your nerve to come back here? You don't live here anymore. Get back out to the gutter where you belong. It's grace that makes that story so great. The second parable is that of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story. The man was walking along the road, and through no fault of his own, he was attacked, beaten, robbed, left for dead. 
a priest comes along and sees him lying there and walks on the other side of the road. He doesn't stop and help. Then a Levite comes and also refuses to help. Now, these were the religious leaders of the time. These were the religious, the righteous ones. Why didn't they stop and help? Maybe they didn't want to get unclean by touching blood. Maybe they were late to church. Maybe they thought the bad guys might still be around. I don't know. But then a Samaritan comes along. And we often miss the impact of this, what Jesus is trying to say. You see, the Jews had contempt for the Samaritans, treated them horribly. They were considered half-breeds. They only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews despised them. If they met a Samaritan on the road, history records they would wrap their robe around them until the Samaritan passed, and then they'd spit on the road behind the Samaritan out of disgust. They treated them poorly, with contempt. They were reviled and mistreated by the Jews. And here comes a Samaritan who had absolutely every right not to stop. He could have said, there you go, finally, a Jew getting what they deserve. But he didn't. Instead, he gave him what he needed, not what he deserved. Luke 10, 33 and following. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What he was saying was, here's my visa card. Please take care of this man. Grace is at so many of at the heart of so many of Christ's teachings. I mean, take a look at Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The second mile, if someone compels you to go one mile, go with him the second mile as well. If someone asks you for your shirt, give him your coat also. If someone strikes you on the cheek, what they deserve is to be hit back. But instead, give them what they need. Show them grace. Turn the other cheek. If we applied this principle, oh my goodness, couldn't it change lives? A wife giving her husband what he needs and not what he deserves. What he deserves is a cold shoulder and a TV dinner, but what he might need is just a little forgiveness, a little extra attention. Mothers, can you imagine what would happen if your children gave their younger brothers and sisters what they needed and not what they deserved? Husbands, what would your reaction be? What would your wife's reaction be? If one night you came home with a bouquet of flowers and a meal because she'd had a horrible day, overwhelmed with work and the kids, 
and apologize for not helping out around the house as much as you should. Grace is at the heart of Jesus' actions too. Consider his actions with the woman taken in adultery. She had been given this precious gift and she had misused it. She had prostituted it. What she deserved was a tongue lashing and to be taken out and stoned. But what she needed was something else. What she needed was a second chance. John 8, 3 through 11. As Jesus was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now I'm going to chase a, a rabbit here for just a second. You notice how the accusers left when Jesus said, if you're without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. And that all the accusers left, beginning with the oldest. In my experience, we become much more aware of our flaws and our deficiencies as we get older. I vividly remember at age 22, just fresh out of school, things were so black and white. And I would read this story, she did wrong, she deserved to be stoned. There's little room for you know, grace here. She made her bed, now she needed to lie in it. And I remember all these bleeding heart students around me said, yeah, but uh, what about giving her some grace? Don't you ever sin, don't you? Yeah, sure, I sin but not like this. And yes, I have fallen, but those are isolated incidences. As I got older, those isolated incidences became less isolated. In fact, after a while, they became the norm. Paul struggled with this himself in Romans 7, 15 and 18 and 19. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do I do not, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And let's look at another passage on this same thing. Matthew 19, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Or another way to put this, he was asking, Lord, how many times should I show grace to somebody that does me wrong? 
No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay for it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. The king gave this man grace. He didn't deserve it. He had taken the money he had been given and had spent it. This is clear cut. The debt needed to be paid. But instead, the king gave him grace that he did not deserve. When the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay for it, he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now remember, this man was fully within his rights. This other man owed him money. He needed to pay it back. That's the law. Pay me back. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because he pleaded with me, shouldn't you have mercy? Or shouldn't you have given grace? On your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you, the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That is what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Why am I much more forgiving in my later years? Why am I much quicker to drop the stones in my hand and not condemn others so fast? I'm keenly aware of how much grace I need. How much I want the Lord to have mercy on me. How much I want the Lord to forgive me. Yes, there are people in my past who have done me wrong and absolutely owe me an apology, which I will never get. But if I want the Lord to forgive me of all the times I have done wrong, then I have to forgive also. And I'm going to chase one last rabbit. Sorry, church. But we need to think seriously about our feelings towards our brothers and sisters that live and worship around us. Do they worship like we do? No. Do they have the same church structure or terminology that we use? Nope. Are we completely right in all of our theological stances? Well, we certainly 
certainly think so. But is there a possibility that they're right and it's us that's wrong? And if they think and believe differently, does that make them the enemy? I mean, if you're like me, think back 10, 20, 40 years ago at your beliefs. Have they changed over the years? As you have studied and learned more, have you softened in some areas and become more sure of yourself and others? A dear, dear friend of mine has written well over a dozen books on these fascinating topics such as the evils of alcohol, the evils of dance, the evils of instrumental music during worship, the evils of having women take leadership roles in the church. Today, these books make him cringe to think about. And when I first started in youth ministry, I taught out of those books. But as I've studied more, learned more, matured, my viewpoints have changed a bit. I think I'm much less dogmatic, much less judgmental. And when discussing other churches and denominations, yes, there is an enemy out there. Yes, there is a roaring lion that's seeking to devour us and send us to hell, but it's not them. As our views and beliefs have changed, they, have prob they will probably continue to evolve and change. And if we want God to show us grace for our well-intentioned efforts, for our best efforts that are slightly off the mark, then we better be offering the same grace to our and kindness to our brothers and sisters. And yes, I'm calling them brothers and sisters. Anybody that wears the name of Christ, I call brother. To our brothers that worship slightly differently than we do. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verse 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. As you judge others, so shall you be judged. In conclusion, the greatest example that we have of grace is that of Christ on the cross. Jesus did more than just talk the talk. He lived it out. As these Romans tied up Jesus and pop went the whip on his back 39 times. As they took this wreath of thorns and crushed it around his head, the pain must have been immense. They made him carry his own cross. And then they took spikes and hammered his hands and feet and as he hung there dying, people at his feet, the ones he was dying for, mocked him and cursed him and spat on him. Jesus could have any moment cried out, God in heaven, come down and give these people what they deserve. But he didn't. 
instead in Luke 23, 40, 43. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said, Father, give them what they need. Give them another chance. The most amazing thing in the world isn't that we have gone to the moon or sent a little robot car to Mars. The most amazing thing isn't that we've learned how to split an atom or sequence DNA. The most astonishing thing of the ages is that we have a God that will give us what we need and not what we deserve. May God be gracious and patient with us as we interact with our brothers and sisters. May we become keenly aware of how much God has done for us and how often he has forgiven us and had compassion on us through grace. If we could just have a fraction of that grace to show to others, wouldn't this be a wonderful place to live? May we somehow come to the realization that what we need more than anything is salvation. What we need is grace. What we need is another chance.